is not the same as wealth. Right? Some people make the mistake of assuming that wealthy people are greedy and that the, the more wealth one has, the more greed and covetousness one must have. And that likewise, the less, less wealth that someone has, the poorer someone is, the less greed that they must have. But greed is not about the possession or lack of wealth. It's about the heart's desire for it and the heart's focus on it. So the Bible says that Abraham was exceedingly wealthy, yet he was never charged with covetousness or greed. As a matter of fact, on one occasion when he had a chance to receive a lot of wealth from a certain king, he refused it in order to maintain a good name. But King Ahab was also wealthy, but he was also very covetous. And at the same time, a poor person may be content with what they have, or they may be as covetous and greedy as any wealthy person. It's about the orientation of the heart. Greed is not the same as wealth. And then, greed is also not a political or financial system. Some people make the mistake of thinking that systems are based on greed while others are not. Others are not. And, and the idea goes that, you know, if we can just get the system right, you know, then we'll eliminate injustices in the world. And this idea ignores the fact that greed is a condition of the human heart. It is not a condition of a system. Listen, can I tell you, if you are going to wait for politicians to design a system that eliminates greed, you're going to wait a long time. Experience has shown that, that greed, if given the opportunity, will take advantage of any and every system. There's no system that can eliminate greed. Only the grace of God can do that in a heart. So with these ideas in mind, let's look at some of what the Bible has to say about greed and covetousness and how to untie ourselves from this knot. So we're going to look at several scriptures and extract some ideas that we can take home and apply to our lives today. So first we're going to look at how this knot ties you up. Several ideas about how this knot ties you up. Then we're going to look at how to get untied and stay untied from this knot, okay? How this knot ties you up. First idea, if you're taking notes, is this. Greed and covetousness are evil. The first thing you need to know about greed and covetousness is that they are evil. Look at Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. It says, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slender, arrogance, and folly. Jesus places covetousness on the same level as the most heinous sins. Theft, malice, sexual immorality, murder. Jesus calls it evil. And not only that, he says that this evil will defile you. Look at the next verse, verse 23. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. That is, it spoils you. It desecrates you. It profanes you. It robs you of your sanctification and holiness and closeness to God. It takes what was beautiful and good and upright and praiseworthy and ruins it. It defiles you. Greed and covetousness are evil. And if you let them into your spirit, they will tie you up in a messy, defiled knot of evil. And then secondly... Greed and covetousness will damage family relationships. Greed and covetousness will damage family relationships. And this one's kind of deceptive because most people don't think in these kinds of terms. No one sets out through greed and covetousness to damage their family. 
But look what it says in Proverbs 15, verse 27. The greedy bring ruin on their households. The greedy bring ruin on their households. We've all read of stories of, of a family that, that won the lottery and it ended up dividing their family and destroying their relationships. We've seen testimonies of how a love for money and an insatiable desire for more has destroyed a marriage and a family. We've seen times when the death of a loved one even resulted in a feud over how what was left was divided. Even Jesus once experienced this in his ministry. In Luke chapter 12, out of the blue, someone runs up to Jesus and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Clearly, a dispute over money is ruining his family. And Jesus responds by saying, watch out, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Watch out, be on guard. Greed will damage your family. It will tie your relationships up in a knot of jealousy and envy and anger over money and possessions. Bring ruin to households. And this brings us to the next idea, going on in the same passage. Covetousness and greed act as though this life is all there is to live for. It's short-sighted. It's myopic. It acts like there's no life after, after death. The greedy person acts like this life is all there is. Look, look at the parable that Jesus gave as he continued on with this man who wanted his fair share. He said, the, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. There's something coming after this life. And he who dies with the most toys does not win. As a matter of fact, God calls the person with this perspective a fool. Because the truth is, he who dies and is not rich towards God loses. Greed will tie a blindfold around your spiritual eyes so that you're not able to see eternity coming. Covetousness will keep you looking only as far as this life goes. But eventually, life is over, and you have to leave it all behind. You can't take anything with you, and you stand before God with nothing. The same way you came into the world, you go out of the world. And the person who is preoccupied with getting wealth and accumulating things but is not concerned with being rich towards God is acting like this world is all there is. The person who's driven by the love of money is acting like there is no life after this life. And then next, covetousness and greed are never satisfied. Covetousness and greed are never satisfied. Let me ask you this question. How much money is enough for a greedy person. How many possessions are enough for a covetous person? The answer is just a little bit more. 
I mean, the number of testimonies I've read where, where people kept thinking, it's just a little more, just a little more, and it seems to be always out of reach. You know, that testimony is an example of something that the Bible already told us about. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is ne never satisfied with their income. If you let yourself be ruled by the love of money or the desire for possessions, you'll find yourself in a never-ending covetous loop. Socrates said it this way, he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. Another great philosopher, Dennis the Menace, <laughs> said it this way, when he was looking through a catalog, he said, this catalog, this catalog's got a lot of toys that I didn't even know I wanted. You know, that's what all marketing is designed to do, is to create in you a, des a desire that you didn't know that you had, a feeling like you have this need that you didn't even know you had. Can I encourage you, if you're watching the shopping network all day long, maybe to watch something else instead. The writer of Proverbs said it this way, Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are human eyes. That's covetousness. And so if you want to try to find happiness, fulfillment, and meaning in money and possessions, you will find that they are always just a little bit out of your reach because covetousness is never satisfied. Instead, it leaves its victim in the cruel bondage of believing that happiness and fulfillment are just one possession away. And then next... At its root, greed and covetousness express a lack of faith. Greed and covetousness express a lack of faith. Look at Hebrews 13.5. It says this, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The greedy and covetous person has difficulty trusting God with the future. Because God has said to his followers that he will never leave or forsake us. Jesus said that your heavenly Father loves you and he knows what you need before you can even ask him. But the covetous person has difficulty believing this. He has difficulty applying this in everyday life because there's this fear of the future, this fear that something is going to happen out there in the unknown future. And, and I'm not sure that God is going there to be there to take care of me. And so I need to focus on accumulating things now. At its root, greed is a declaration that God is not enough. Covetous is a declaration that God's promises are not trustworthy. It's a declaration that I'm not really sure that God loves me the way he says he does. The covetous person has a problem with faith. And if you let it, covetousness will tie you up in a knot of fear and worry. And that may be worst of all. Greed and covetousness will lead you out of the kingdom of God. Let me show you how. In Ephesians chapter 5, Verses 3 to 5, it says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. 
No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, whoa. I mean, that's getting serious, isn't it? No greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Greed and covetousness, if left unrepented of, will lead your heart away from God. It will lead you away from the life-giving grace and presence of Jesus. Luke said it this way, chapter 16, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Paul said it this way to Timothy, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Covetousness will lead you away from faith in Jesus and set you on a road that leads out of the kingdom of God. It will tie you up in such an insidious knot that it will strangle your faith in God and lead you away from his kingdom. All right now. So that's how greed and covetousness will tie you up in a knot. So now let's look at how, how do we untie this knot and stay free from it. So we're going to look at three concepts, three ideas from the Bible that if you apply them to your daily lives, will enable you to walk free from greed and covetousness and all of its negative stuff that goes with it. All right? Three ideas. First one is this. Execute greed. Execute greed. If you're going to untie yourself from covetousness and keep yourself untied from it, you need to execute greed. That is, put it to death. You must kill it. Look at Colossians 3, 5 again. It says this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Put greed to death. By the power of the Spirit living in you, by the power of the grace of God, put it to death. Don't toy with it. Don't leave it lingering. Don't, don't keep it as a pet or a toy or something to take out and play with every once in a while. Kill it. Don't let it live in your life. Don't give it air. Don't feed it. What does it say in Ephesians when we read it earlier? But among you there must only be a hint of greed. What's that? Your Bible doesn't say that? What translation are you using? Well, let me read it again. Oh, you're right. But among you there must not be even a hint of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Put covetousness and greed to death. And then secondly, develop more faith in God. Do things to develop faith on purpose. Remember Hebrews 13, 5, we said, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God has promised to never leave you, to not forsake you. If you're going to stop trusting in money and wealth and possessions, then you need to start trusting in something else. You need to focus your trust in someone else. You need to develop more faith in God. Do things on purpose to increase your faith. Get in the Word more. Get in prayer more. Get in worship. Join a Sunday school class. Join a small group. Come out to worship on Sunday night. 
Grow in your faith intentionally. Decide that money will not be your master. Decide that the master you serve and love above all else is your wonderful, beautiful, loving, merciful, grace-filled Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Decide that the master you serve and love is the one who says, I will provide for all of your needs out of my riches and glory. You know, decide that the master you serve and love is the one that the Bible says has eyes of fire and a voice of thunder, whose face shines like the sun in all its brilliance, and who rides a white horse when he comes back, and whose name is called Faithful and True. That's your master. That's my master. That's the one who should rule your heart, knowing that Jesus is going to be faithful to you. Develop more faith. And then thirdly, learn to develop contentment. Learn to develop contentment. If you're going to untie this knot of greed and covetousness, you have to learn to be content. You know, in 1 Timothy, we looked at that passage, chapter 6, Paul was talking about how a desire to get rich traps people into foolish and harmful desires and how it brings ruin and destruction. And he was talking about how the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and how it leads people away from faith. And, and he paused in verse 6 to say this, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, in the world, from an earthly point of view, wealth and possessions and advancement is great gain. But from an internal perspective, godliness with contentment is great gain. It goes on to say, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Say, that's a lot of contentment. The author of Hebrews said it this way, be content with what you have. Whatever it is you have, be content with that. You know, this may surprise you, but you do not need to keep up with the Joneses. I mean, just because your neighbor or your coworker got a brand new luxury car does not mean that you have to have one too. Right, just because your, your friend got a brand new iPhone and spent a grand on it, spent $1,000 on that, does not mean that you have to have one too. You know, it may just mean that they spent their rent money on a phone. <laughs> Young people, can I talk to you? If you don't have the proper tag on your jeans or on your sneakers, your life will not be ruined. And uh, all of you adults are saying amen. You know you were there at one point. How many of you at one point, you know, when you were teenagers, said, you don't understand, I have to have these sneakers. My life is going to be ruined. Was your life ruined? You're going to be just fine. And, and it's not that it's sinful to have a nice car or a new phone or any number of these things. Uh, the thing itself is not sinful, and having the thing is not necessarily sinful. But the question is, is whether you can be content without it. Paul said it this way to the Philippians, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The secret of contentment. Contentment allows you to enjoy life no matter what is happening. Contentment enables you to experience the abundant life of Jesus 
no matter what is happening. Because contentment doesn't attach your joy and happiness to anything that is attached to this world. When you're content, there's nothing left out there that you still need in order to be happy or to be joyful or to be satisfied. The secret of contentment releases you into the abundant life that God desires for you. Contentment will keep you from overbuying on more house than you need. It'll keep you from spending more on cars than you need to. It'll keep you from spending more on luxuries than you should. Covetousness may lead you to disobey and dishonor God in order to get what you think you need. But contentment puts God before riches and trusts Him to provide what you need. Covetousness will risk long-term integrity for short-term gain. But contentment says a good name is to be desired above great riches. Covetousness will claw and scratch its way to the top. It will kick people off the corporate ladder and step on people on the way up. But contentment honors God first and accepts promotion according to his plan. Contentment is the secret to the abundant life. You know, I can remember, oh, a few decades ago, Jill and I got married almost three decades ago, right? Um, and uh, at the time, I was making just a little bit above minimum wage, I think. I was working as a custodian in the church and making just a little above minimum wage. And, and we decided that we were going to live a life that was characterized by contentment, that we were going to live within our means, that we were going to live as inexpensively as we could, and that we were going to put God first in our lives and our finances and honor him with everything that we have. And it became our goal to establish a lifestyle where we could, if we needed to, live on one salary because we knew that the size of our family might increase sooner, and we wanted to be able to, um, when that happened, have Jill have the freedom to stay home and be an at-home mom, which she wanted to do. And so about a year after we were married, we, we, we took the small resources that we had received from our wedding combined with what we were able to save in the first year, and we, and we bought this, this mobile home. Now, it was an old mobile home in a kind of a rundown park, and not only that, it was a bank repo. And so the people, when they left, they had taken everything out of this home. They had taken the, the refrigerator and the stove and the hot water heater, and all of the light fixtures. So when we put everything that we had together to, to buy this mobile home, we had just enough left to buy a hot water heater and have it installed. So we got hot water going. And then we had a couple things that we were able to sell, and so we were able to buy a refrigerator. But then that was it. We were completely tapped out, and we didn't have enough for a stove or anything like that. We had a, we had a microwave oven that, that someone had given us for our wedding, and we had a couple of those stove top burners that you plug in and put on the, on the top of your, of your counter so you can heat up a pan. And that was it. We didn't have a whole stove for a whole year or so. And, uh, I mean, if you had looked at us that first year that we were there, I mean, you would have thought that we were poor. You would have said that they're poor people. But can I tell you that we didn't feel like we were poor because we didn't lack anything. We had enough to pay our bills. We had enough to pay our tithes, and, uh, and we had enough to, for food and clothing, and we didn't need assistance from anyone. We were content. We felt free. And was it tight sometimes? Yeah, it was tight sometimes. But over the course of the year, you know what happened? We were able to save up enough money to buy a stove. Whoopee! 
About a year later, we're like, okay, wow, we got a stove now. And a little bit after that, we saved enough, enough money to buy a, uh, a ceiling fan with a light on it for the kitchen. <laughs> and eventually, a little after that, this little bundle of joy showed up named Emily. And uh, Jill was able to stay home with her. God always provided everything we needed and more because of the contentment that God had worked into our hearts. We're able to tithe, able to give to missions even, able to have money for things even a little bit later on, like music lessons. And it's not so much about what you have or don't have. And it wasn't for us about what we had or didn't have. It was about the attitude that we had with what we have. Contentment is about your attitude towards what you have and don't have. Paul said it this way to the Corinthians, those who buy something should live as though it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world should live as though they are not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Let me close with this, this short story. There was once this group of professional higher education people, uh, and they were at an alumni uh, function, and they were well established in their careers, and they were, they were talking at their college reunion about a beloved professor who had impacted their lives. So they all decided, let's go and visit this professor. And during their visit, the conversations soon turned into complaints about stress and their work and their lives and about the demands of maintaining their lifestyle and how frustrated some of them were. And so offering his guests coffee, this wise professor went to the kitchen and returned with a large pot of coffee and an assortment of different kinds of cups. Some were porcelain, plastic, glass, crystal, some looking expensive, some exquisite, some plain. And he put the tray down and told them to help themselves to the coffee. And when all of them had a cup of coffee in the hand, the professor called attention to the cups that they had chosen. He said, you know, I noticed that all of the nice-looking, expensive cups were taken up, leaving behind the plain and cheap ones. You know, while it may be normal for you to want the best for yourselves, this illustrates the source of your problems and stress. The cup itself adds no quality to the coffee. In most cases, it just is a more expensive vessel, and it may even hide what the drink is. What all of you really wanted was the coffee, not the cup. But you consciously went for the best cups, and then you began eyeing each other's cups. Now consider this. Life is the coffee. Your job your money, your wealth, your positions in society, they're just the cup that's containing your life. They're just tools and vessels that hold and contain life. The type of cup one has does not define nor change the quality of the life that you have. Sometimes by focusing only on the cup we have in our hands, we fail to enjoy the coffee that God has provided for us. The happiest people don't necessarily have the best cups, but they've got the best coffee. You follow my meaning? Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And so as we head into our response time this morning, I want to ask you, and here's what I believe God is asking you. Is Jesus first place in your life? Is Jesus sitting on the throne of your heart? If he is, then you'll find that covetousness 
has been crucified. Faith is being built, and contentment comes naturally in your life. But if not, you'll find that probably you struggle with some form of covetousness. You struggle with believing that God is going to take care of you. You'll find yourself struggling with contentment. If Jesus is sitting on the throne of your heart, you'll also find that you're not so tied up with all of the other things that we talked about in this series. You're not so worried. You're not so controlled by anger. You're not driven by jealousy or pride or unforgiveness or lustful thoughts. But if Jesus is not ruling in your heart, then you're probably struggling with one, two, or three, or all of these areas as well. You know, with all of these issues that we've talked about in this series, it not only, it's not really an issue of self-improvement. It's an issue of rulership. Who is going to rule in your heart? So I want to give you an opportunity to let Jesus rule in your heart this morning. You know, some of you here may say this morning, you know, Pastor Paul, I'm a professing Christian, but sometimes I struggle with this idea of letting Jesus be Lord. But I, I want to make a decision today to relinquish control of my life and let Jesus rule in my heart. And if that's you, you'd say, yeah, Pastor Paul, that's me. I'm just going to raise my hand with no one looking around. Thank you for those hands. Yeah. Making a decision. Today, Jesus, you be the ruler. Now, some of you may say, you know, Pastor Paul, usually I do let Jesus rule in my heart, but there are some times when something's happened, I just like to get back up and nudge him over a bit so I can you know, have a say in what's going on. You know, you want to sit on the throne with Jesus, and you'd say, you know, Pastor Paul, I want to make a commitment today. I'm going to stop doing that. Amen. Thank you for that hand. Anyone else? Those hands. Yes, thank you for those hands. Now, let me quickly just ask one more group of people. If you're here today and you've never really committed your life to Christ. You never really have let him get on the throne of your heart. You know, maybe you've been checking us out for a little bit. Maybe you've been coming for a little while and saying, you know, what is all this Jesus stuff about? You've never really given your life to him and said, okay, Jesus, I want to let you be my Lord and my Savior. And you say, you know, this morning I, I want to do that. I'm ready to take that step. And Pastor Paul, would you remember me in prayer? With no one looking around, would you raise your hand and say, yeah, Pastor Paul, that's me. Remember me in prayer. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you for those hands. Thank you. Anyone else? Say, today I am ready to make Jesus my Savior. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me now and let's pray together? First, I'm going to say a prayer and ask you to repeat it with me. And it's not some magical prayer and the repetition of words, but as you say these things and mean them in your heart, God's going to do exactly what you ask Him to do. Would you all say this prayer with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you today a sinner. I confess I can't save myself. But I believe that Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead. Lord Jesus, would you please be my Savior and the Lord of my life. I let you rule in my heart. Now help me walk this out every day. In Jesus' name.